Before we get onto this week's episode, I just very quickly wanted to remind you that the next round of group coaching with me is open and we'll start together on the 19th of January. I would love you to join us. If you want to have the most powerful start to your year, then please do think about joining us. It is such an incredible way to connect with other like-minded mothers in the Motherkind community And together, I take you through a four-week coaching process, which is the absolute best coaching tools that I've ever discovered to help you feel more empowered, calmer, more energized, and to help you feel really excited about your life and the year ahead and the possibilities for 2022. So please do think about joining us. All the information is on the website, motherkind.co. And there are tons of testimonials on there as well from mothers in our community who've gone through the process. And some of them have even called it life-changing, which was incredible to hear. So please do have a think about joining us. I would love to work with you. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the podcast with me, your host, Zoe Blasky. I hope you're doing well. So I am so excited to give you this episode this week. It is with Candice Brathwaite, who you probably have heard of because she is an absolute force and such a strong voice in the parenting and motherhood arena. She is a influencer and she founded something called Make Motherhood Diverse, which is an online initiative that aims to encourage a more representative and diverse depiction of motherhood in the media. And she has a new book out. I was so lucky because her publisher gave me time with her on her publication day. The book is called I Am Not Your Baby Mother. It is incredible. I've read it twice in preparation for the interview, which I would have read it anyway. It is so fantastic. It is part memoir, part manifesto about Black motherhood. And in this interview, Candice and I talk about her childhood, her traumas, how she found herself being a kind of, in her words, you know, she didn't necessarily want this, this kind of role of this voice and activist that she is now with this book and with her platforms. We also talk about spirituality and how her spiritual practices really help to keep her grounded when things around her can get pretty intense. And we talk about that, you know, now famous incident with another mummy blogger who gave racist comments about Candice. We talk about that. She's incredibly open about that. And I think you'll hear in the episode just the energy that she brings. She really helped me access a a really alive and fun part of me. And um, she is brilliant. I think you're going to love this episode. As ever, if you did, please leave a comment on iTunes. I know I say it every week and you probably get bored of me hearing it. The reason I say it is because... If we get more reviews on the Motherkind podcast page, 
Apple and other podcast platforms will share it more. And the more people that hear these conversations, as far as I'm concerned, the better. So I hope that you really enjoy this episode. Here it is. Welcome to the podcast, my lovely. Congratulations. We are recording this. I feel so honoured that I have got an hour with you on your publication day. Might be slightly delirious. (laughs) Honestly, I was just saying off recording, I've been on the shunt since like 9.45 and only had a slice of toast. <laughs> a bit like, oh yeah, everything's so lovely. No, um, listen, you deserve it. Oh, you deserve yeah, it. Yeah. It's not a light-hearted book. And I was so nervous. And it's out there now. And it's like giving up a kid for adoption. I'm like, right, the child is gone. What can I do? I cannot follow everyone around and ask them to be respectful or not judge them. It's gone and you can only hope for the best kind of thing well I've read it twice and I mean the emotions that I went through you know I read a lot of books and a lot of this type of book like part self-help part memoir you know it's my thing and god it brought up shame Mm. it brought up massive identification some areas of your life you know particularly around Mm. addiction and trauma you know that's my story yeah I wanted to hug you a lot I wanted to grab, like, your seven-year-old self. And, like, I felt like a protective mother energy coming through in bits Mm. of it. Yeah. But mostly, like, I thought, how was I so unconscious? Like, some Mm. of the things you were talking about. And I was wondering whether, are you bored of, like, privileged white girls like me saying, I'm sorry I was so unconscious, I feel shame? Or is that kind of what you want to do? Because I know some people that I follow in this space are like, please stop talking about your shame. It's not about you. We're bored of it. And so I'm wondering. Mm. Oh, no, I don't think I'm the bored type. I'm always excited by, and this is the thing I need to make it clear. It's not just white women. It's a class thing. It's a where you're born thing. It's not just the idea of a middle class white woman. There are parts of that book where you can see me and my partner at Loggerheads where I'm like, oof, you you think private education's the norm. Whoa, 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 whoa. And he's a black guy from Africa. And that just brought up things in me that I was like super triggered by. And so I'm never bored. I'm like, this is a bottomless pit of conversation and communication. And yes, there are boundaries around how much I should offer up to people, but I never want to be one of those people, not just black people, but one of those people who are like, I'm tired of speaking about this with you because I'm still learning. I feel the same. You know, my jam is like transgenerational trauma. I love it. That's why I think I inhaled your book twice because that's what I really saw in you in the story. Yes. It's like someone who's almost taken all the pain and we're going to get into some of that pain hopefully, if you'll share it with us, (laughs) and almost like alchemized it into this truth that is changing other people. Do you see yourself as that like character in your lineage? Completely, but it comes at a really massive cost. I am the black sheep of my family on both sides, but specifically on my maternal side, I'm too outspoken. I rock the boat too much. Why can't you just accept that this is the way things have always been 
And why can't you just be a cog in this wheel? Because it was about 20 that I really started to spread my wings and be like, this is so wrong. This is so traumatic that actually I'm physically going to run away. I'm going to move away and try and find my way in the world because anything is better than doing this again and again and again. And it's come at great cost. It's come at a cost that my children won't pay the same price, but I've paid a very heavy price for the things I write and the way I speak. And so I'm always very tender with, especially women, black women, about encouraging them to live their truth. It's like, yeah, cute, but so few speak about the cost of this living of truth. Not everyone can afford it. Not everyone is ready for it. And I don't want to like paint this idea of freedom that most nights I'm really lonely. Even today, I'm really alone in this celebration because I have decided to go against everything that my community says is okay. So, yeah. And does it feel now like you couldn't imagine it any other way? Completely. I was really lucky. My dad and my maternal grandfather from a really young age, were like, caution to the wind, screw what any of them say or think. You get one shot, do it to the best of your ability and don't even let like your own mother's ideals hold you back. I'm really, really lucky. There are some people trying to do the work or the activism I do with no one supporting them. You know, my dad's dead now, but at least I had two guys backing my corner who were like, for you to be the person we know you're destined to be, you're going to have to cut a lot of people off, including maybe even the person that gave birth to you, which is so crazy. You know, Maya Angelou talks about the same, right? She says the same thing. But for her, it was the other way. It was her mother who kept saying to her, you're destined, you're destined. She believed it. It yeah. makes me really emotional. Yeah. I don't know why. I know. It's a really, I've been crying all morning because I said online, and then now I'm going to cry. I said, I don't think people understand how social media does get a bad rep sometimes, but people online have stood in for me today where my parents aren't there. You know? And so it's really been a place of joy for me today. It's like, yeah. Not everyone is in agreement with the way you're trying to push a narrative forward, but there is so much love from people you may never meet that it's enough to like bridge that gap. And so, yeah, Mm. see, (laughs) it's so true. And you know, someone said to me, you never know, like, it's not often the people who comment even who are in your inbox that you're influencing. And we've had a few exchanges on Instagram, not many, but you have really influenced me in terms of your mindset and your thinking. And, and I think you will be having a far greater influence than you even could fathom right now. I'm sure of it. Mm. And that's the thing. And that's the only thing I'm holding on to. And I especially understand that as a black woman, black people are going to read that book and the work is going to happen so quietly because there are going to be people that are ready to admit they're in traumatic relationships with their mother their father their husband and they're going to read that and be like "Ah, I'm going now you do not need to make a public declaration about that but to know I was part of that choice is really a massive deal honestly it's a huge legacy 
Yes. Yes. Legacy has been the theme of the week in our household. And yeah, to know that I've had my place in that, or this book will do that, is almost scary. I think. Yeah, of course it's I, scary. So I would scary. be petrified. <laughs> What's interesting to me is that I see this time and time again. Like the people that I see, like you, really standing in their power and their truth and accepting the loneliness of that, as you said, have such mm. resistance to it as well. And yes. I love that you talked about you're resistant to even become a mother. And I'd love to talk about that because mm. me too. And yeah. then you were so resistant for this book, but it found its way through you. You got like declined, didn't you? Like four other ideas. And it's clear to me, like this book was the one that was trying to channel through. Yes. Yeah. I didn't want any of this life. <laughs> I was meant to be 32 on some shakes yacht in Dubai. Like this is like, this is not what I had planned. And um, the motherhood thing came and I was resistant to that because I felt like I'd spent so much of my childhood mothering people. I was like, actually, I'm done with that. I've not been able to go to my prom or, you know, have a Saturday job because I'm looking after my siblings. And your mother, weren't you? And my mum, yeah, with her ill mental health. And so I was like, ooh, you know, I was so firm in that. And it's early on in the book that I wouldn't even use the term admit that I speak about my first abortion because I was like, I'm not doing this. And then as they came along and softened my heart a bit, but even now with two kids, I'm still like, oh, no, wow. Okay, I am your mum. That's really strange. And I think I didn't want to write this book because I didn't want to, historically cement the fact in the British Library that like I was writing about being a mum like how boring it just felt so boring and I say all the time I work in a space where motherhood books are a dime a dozen it's like you come on Instagram you grow a platform you get a book deal you write about how much you hate your kids and how much gin you drink and then the next thing I could go on a big rant with you about this it's yeah, it's insanity. You know, and even though, even from the outside, I knew that I could perhaps create something different, I felt intimidated by even having to write something in the parenting arena. I was like, it's so saturated. It's so mind-numbingly boring to me right now. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Yeah, but it's saturated with, I want to say, unconscious voices. And that sounds mm. judgmental, and it actually isn't. It's kind of just truth that there aren't many mothers talking about the stuff that you talk about in your book which is what comes up from your own childhood when you become a mother so tell us a bit about that what came up because you're a little bit like me and that I don't have a blueprint to follow I'm rewriting Mm -hmm. a generational blueprint and that is kind of like daily tough work and for you it's you know you say in the book when you had Esme all that came up for you. Tell us, share about that. Yeah. Having Esme really made me have to think about my relationship with money, the idea of generational wealth, the general universal idea that we should be shielding our kids from traumatic things. I never had that privilege. I saw my mum take an overdose when I was six. Mm. So, you know, out the gate, 
I'm like in a space where it's like bailiffs are at the door, seeing your mum in like a mental health institution. I'm leaving secondary school to go and rock my two-month-old brother to sleep. That's my childhood. And so when I had my own kids, I was like, that's not the way it should be done. And how are you going to take the steps to make sure that if you can control it, all they remember from being a kid is like Rice Krispies and perhaps being disappointed at Santa Claus's offering one year. How is that going to be their top level trauma? And I was just like, I don't know if I have the capacity to do that. I don't know if I have the strength to learn new skills and teach kids things that I've never been taught. I've never been taught that. Same. You know, (laughs) I've never been taught. And now to watch my children run to the snack drawer and just expect food to be there is so funny to me. And then when there's not their specific snack there, they're just like, oh, mum, dad, can you go Tesco? And I'm just like, ooh. I have to sit with that because I didn't even have the space to say to my mum, I don't want that meal for dinner. There was no other meal. You had the same meal every night, didn't you? Tuna and... Salmon and rice every night. (laughs) Tin salmon and rice. Yeah. And I'm like, the fact they even have those options, my friends, you know, laugh all the time. They're like, you're really raising kids who, when you tell them about how you grew up, they're just going to be like, mum, you're lying. Like, this don't even make sense. Like, what are you saying? <laughs> Just like, it's weird. It's very strange and hard. I've got two girls, but sometimes I feel like I've got three because I've got my own inner child. Yeah. I'm kind of parenting all three of us. That's how yeah. I feel a lot. And when you're giving your children things you never had, you're having to quiet the child in yourself and you're having to, like, then tell your adult self, no, I can't afford to do this. It's okay. Do it. While the child in yourself is like, no, we can't do that. There's not enough. Ah." Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel you on that completely, yeah. So I think one story that really got to me, and it might not be the story that you think I'm going to say, because there are some big, powerful, traumatic stories. The one that had me sobbing was the bugaboo story. Yeah. And I think the reason I felt so sad about it, I'm going to ask you to share it for those that haven't read the book yet, is because the mum had a toddler on her hip. Mm. And I thought that toddler becomes that kid that then shames your Esme later on in the book. And I think that's why I got so upset. And I thought I just felt so much empathy and compassion for you in that moment. Mm. And anger and anger. I felt anger. Yeah. Well, you went to get a secondhand bugaboo when you were faced with, with horrific racism. Yeah. The woman, a white lady, clearly thought, myself and my sister went to pick it up, thought we were charity workers. Then when she found out we weren't, she wouldn't take like the security latch off the door. And, you know, it was just this disconnect of seeing me in my full humanity and like quickly trying to get me off her doorstep. And it's so funny, I'm even trying to purchase this specific pushchair to prove myself to the world. Like, I've got myself together. I've got the pushchair that all of the mums who are not in my tax bracket have. I can do this. And even in the moment of trying to purchase it, I'm reminded that, no, you don't really have this just because of how you look. And I was kind of young at the time, 25. 
there are so many preconceived notions about my version of motherhood. And yet it was a slap in the face, to be fair. You've talked about still experiencing that at mummy blogger events. Yeah. As my career developed and I started to go to these events because it's what you're encouraged to do as well. It's where you network, it's where you meet people. There is that soft three-second gaze where someone takes you in from head to foot and determines if you're worth their time. And in my early days of trying to build a freelance career, I was worth nobody's time. Nobody's. It was like people would say hi just because it's like, oh, she's the only black girl here. If I don't say hi, this is going to be a problem. Hi, but then look straight past me and be scanning the room for whoever has the largest platform or whoever's going to help. Really? I swear to you. (laughs) What? Whoever's going to help grow their thing. And don't get me wrong, I've met some hard, fierce friends in those spaces but the general consensus was you're not down, your skin's too brown, you're not rich enough, you don't get it. And there are so many women who message me now who are like, you know, I've just had my first kid and I went to this or that and I don't feel like I fit in. And I'm like, I feel you and you probably don't. And you know what's also okay? It's okay to not want to mill around in circles that aren't accepting of you because of their own bias or privilege it's okay to just be like actually I don't have to do that and you know when people get towards the end of the book I'm honest about the fact that if I had a crystal ball we wouldn't be having this conversation to me there's been too many intrusions on my personal life there's been too many knocks to my mental health to make this mummy blogger thing worth it but I'm here now. And so you just think, okay, experience. But off the top, I'm not encouraging women to choose this path for themselves. No way. So tell me a bit about what it's brought up for you then with your own mental health. You know, we talked about it a bit, this kind of high Mm. price that you're paying to, Mm. to be this voice. I understand that in the mummy blogging arena specifically, I'm perhaps an annoyance more than this welcomed voice. And I am an annoyance because I am having to point out situations, adverts, whatever, spaces where largely white middle-class women have been so comfortable and have had no one question the work and what they're doing that when I come along, it's like, oh, for God's sake, would she shut up? We were onto a good thing. Why are you pointing out that we need more disabled people or more Asian people? Like, could you pipe down type of attitude? And I think the trolling towards the back end of 2019 really amplified that. It was like, On one hand, publicly, I'm being brought on podcasts to talk about birth death rates for black women in Britain. But privately, it's like, oh, she weaponizes race. You know, she is a problem. For me, I don't know if that was worth it because I'm really tired. And I had an interview a week ago with a journalist and she was like, you know, I really read your book. And it feels like a resignation towards this mummy blogging scene. And I was like, well, I'm not going to change your mind about that. You take what you take from what I've given. I wouldn't say it's a resignation, but it is very much my defining moment. Like, please do not put me in a space with 
people who secretly would blow the fire off my candle if they could, because I perhaps represent or remind them of the fact that they are employed because so many other women are overlooked and so many things, the finance of this industry is not split fairly. There is no thought or care for women who do not fit this mould. I understand how that can be annoying, but it's cost, it's cost me a lot to spread that message, basically. Mm, particularly how you handled the horrific experience that you had when someone was trying to ruin your career yeah. by outing something in your past. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I mean, you've talked yeah, about it in the so- book, so I guess you do. So, yeah. And I say it really confidently. I used to be a sex worker and someone took it upon themselves to email every brand that I worked with and my management team. Of course, my man, like everyone close to me knew that. That was really funny. But they believed they could use my past as something to like stop my career dead in its tracks. Now, the funny thing is, There had been rumblings about this for, say, a year before that moment. So we're talking Christmas 2018. And I was saying to my management, I was saying to my other half, oh, I should just come out and talk about this, you know, because I hate when people think they have something over me. Mm -hmm. But the general consensus around me was, no, 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 it will be fine. And then the day my manager called me and she was crying, she was like, I don't even know how to tell you this, but someone's really going, they're putting their foot on the pedal and they're really trying to expose you for lack of a better word. And the timing of the situation was so precarious because it was like three days after the trolling sensation. So my name was already in newspapers for something that actually had nothing to do with me. And I was devastated, not because I was ashamed. I was devastated because I didn't listen to my instincts. If I had listened to myself a year ago, I could have led with my truth in a way that suited me. And I didn't do it. And you said that. You said that in the book about the same blogger that kicked off the trolling and said that you used my yeah. as a race. You said when you met that person, we're not going to use names because that's not what this is about, even though everyone will know what we're talking about. But when you met that person, your inner alarm system went off and you overrode it. it. screaming. But how often do we do that as women? How often do we do that? Men don't do it as much. Do you know yeah, why it is? It's because we're taught as little girls when we say, I don't like that uncle hugging me. We're yes. told, give him a hug. Give him a hug. Say bye. Kiss your uncle. Kiss your granddad. Even though you get that feeling where you're like, this isn't right. You get often taught to override it. You've got to override that. You've got to please people. You've got to be seen to be nice. And, you know, not only did I get that feeling about her, my mum got that feeling about her. And to this day, my manager and my other half are like, Whenever I bring them a situation, they're like, don't even bring us a situation because you were so right the first time and we were so wrong that we've learned to just follow your lead. Trust you. Follow your lead because you were so on point. And I think had I listened to my feelings about her, we wouldn't have ended up where we were back end of last year because I would have cemented the fact in my mind that this is not a friendly, kind person. Mm. But... I learned the hard way and, you know, again, it's just all experience, unfortunately. And I love how you talk about 
not listening to that instinct and putting yourself at the bottom and you use this brilliant pyramid analogy <laughs> yes <laughs> around how you say you know there's white men at the top mm-hmm. talk us through it in my head there's a pyramid and white men are at the very top and then you have white women and then under white women are for me other voices that are termed as fame apart from black or other and then you have the black man at the very bottom of the pyramid but black women aren't actually visible on the pyramid as a shape on a piece of paper to me black women are the stilts holding the pyramid up in the soil like that's where black women are and it's like and no one wants to hear us no one wants to believe us but we are having to hold everything up and what I learned from your book is how the cultural what's happened generationally has Mm. impacted that and how hard it is you know and it must piss you off to see these self-care cutesy memes all over Instagram without understanding (laughs) actually that you know I come at it from my generational stuff but you've got that plus 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 Mm -hmm. it's like right if I want to do self-care sometimes a black woman self-care is a divorce Or it's finally admitting that her uncle sexually assaulted her. Or it's admitting that maybe the man she's with is because he was the first man to show her love, not because she actually loves him. Like, it's so deep. It's so deep. And that's the thing. I think the cover of the book has tricked everyone. They're like, oh, yeah, let me buy this book. It's not a cute cute book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I read you said in Stella what an article in Stella I know I know <laughs> I read you said in Stella no one's gonna call me a, a mummy blogger after this for me no one was calling you that anyway I never saw you as a mummy blogger if I'm honest I saw you as an activist yeah. from the start but the book is I mean it is hard hitting and I'm mm. wondering like the statistics that you pull out Because I know this is your lived experience, but did researching those statistics, how did that make you feel? Did you know those stats? No, I didn't. Apart from the childbirth one, I didn't know any of those stats. You have a feeling when you are the subject of inequality, you have a feeling, but to see certain things. So only 20,000 black people graduate compared to 200,000 white people. I mean, I, I'm, I, I know what you're saying. Like, I know that. I went to uni. I only have one black friend. I mean, she is, like, incredible, but there's just one. Just so it's kind of like, I know that This that's... is the thing. And see, chapters like that, I didn't go to uni. So actually seeing that on paper, I was like, oh, no, no, we're really screwed before we begin. And then, say, in the chapter about knife crime, the same year all those black kids get excluded from school is the same year bricks and mortar in Brixton gets bought for over 30 million quid. And I'm like, yeah, but the schools in the county are saying they're underfunded. (laughs) It just blew my mind to see it in black and white. It really did. The part of the education that you provided me in, in the book was things that I knew, but like I'd never really thought about in the way that you presented them in how in my privilege like I went to uni I came home when I finished uni and I wasn't forced to pay rent which is the norm right yeah. it can be the yeah. norm I know there's no yeah. normal, you know but, but you know I then was able to get a job and my parents supported me while I was on the 
on the career ladder you know that's and, the, and the thing is most 17 18 year old black kids are supporting their households it's not the other way around most of them don't go to uni because our parents need our income from our part-time jobs yeah and you talk about this in the book sending money home yeah and the idea of sending money backwards we are encouraged to get what in maybe our grandparents' eyes is a really good education, which is top level A-levels, and then go out into the workforce because it's seen as like a cultural duty to support your family back home or the family that came before you. And when I look at the difference, not just between black and white people, but black and Asian people, I'm just like, we seem to be the only race who see this as normal. Mm. It's Can we start to send money forward? Can we start to expect our children to be homeowners? Can we start to expect to see our children enjoy generational wealth and private education if that's your choice but when you are a 17 year old and I've been that 17 year old who can't even go out with your mates because it's your duty to keep the electric meter topped up there's already a glass ceiling that so few are going to understand where do you go from there (laughs) you can't can you it's like you're starting the running race 10 counties back yeah exactly and then you know halfway through the race there are people who don't understand your life telling you oh pull yourself up by your bootstraps work a bit harder stay out of gangs don't get in trouble and so we're not just in a race our lane has hurdles more than hurdles but you know know? ditches and hurdles and (laughs) this is it and so sending money back is more important than enjoying work this whole concept you talked about it's really really made me think as well because you said I'm the only woman in my family who enjoys what I do the only one and not just like in my immediate family when I think about every woman living so like third cousins and great aunts and I am the only woman who gets up every day and is jazzed to do her job the only one in 2020. Is that because the focus is on sending the money back? You get a job and you earn in order to send the money back, not forward. Yes, that is part of the issue. But the other issue is that we, of course, are not encouraged to feel pleasure. And this is really layered for Black women because it's not just pleasure in a sense of, right, I can go to a pleasurable job and make money that makes me happy early on in the book our sexual pleasure is so constrained it's so for the offering of men it's always for other people there are oh god I can count on one hand the black women I know and none of them are family members who live a life of pleasure they wake up and they tend to a garden that makes them happy or they've married someone that makes them happy black women lack space to feel true pleasure and true joy and I think when we talk about jobs and money it's just that it's very amplified in that because we are always in service and so when it comes to sending money back home everyone naturally thinks of the black woman in the home doing that first. It's back to your pyramid isn't it? If you're at the bottom of the pyramid holding it up there's no pleasure or joy there you know there's a lot of pressure downward pressure. Yeah. And I understand that in my community, the book I've offered up could 
mean that I'm a pariah because I've done something really ballsy. I've written that because if I'm a white man, I'm like, I've walked to the top of the pyramid. And I'm like, hi guys, down there is really messy and we've got stuff to sort out and join me on this march to freedom. And I know there are going to be some black people who are like, oh my God, why did she do that? Because no, 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 the no. secrecy, you talk a lot about the secrecy, which is mm. just particularly around mental health. It's just yes. not talked about. Oh, it, the only place mental health is talked about usually in black communities is in a church with a pastor or a deacon. And it's with some like 12 step plan to like pray these demons away. But there are no public conversations about your child being sectioned or you feeling blue or no, 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 no. Because we have such an emphasis on religion in our community that the first thing is, oh, are you praying enough? Oh, gosh, have you left room for demons to get in your life? Whoa, 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 whoa. And so no one. Are you religious? You don't really talk about that in the book. Because I'm not religious in like a Christian sense. I'm really spiritual and I believe in like a higher power, but I bloody hate church. Oh, I can't bear it. I'm like, oh God, this is terrible. <laughs> and so I well, don't want to come Well, oppressive white men at the top, right? <laughs> why would you, why would you engage with that? I don't want to come out and be like, oh, you know, I don't want to say that I find the constraints of being a Christian, black or otherwise, too much. But I do believe in a higher power. But I also believe that Christianity was used as a stronghold to trick black people into slavery. I believe that too. And so, you know, it's a very thin line. And I try to give my family members who do believe in the church and what it brings to their life, leave room for that to grow. But I have to be strong about what I believe in and the kind of Christianity I was raised around just seeks to silence black women even more. So I'm like, actually, it's not my bag. (laughs) Tell me about what spirituality means to you. Oh, it's everything. More often than not, if I'm feeling bad in my physical, it's because I've let something in my spiritual practice slip. So about your spiritual practice? I am so into meditation and crystals and understanding like my planet alignments for the month. (laughs) I believe in the ancestral plane. I believe in dreams. I believe in all of that stuff. And for anyone who's like, I'm a bit confused. If you watch Black Panther, I believe in everything the Black Panther movie illustrates. I believe in being able to liaise with people that have passed on, who are guiding you and helping you. And whenever I start to feel poorly physically, which I felt really poorly during this whole pandemic, and I know that's because I let my physical brain lead. I just got so wrapped up in the world is on fire. We're all going to die. I've not finished what I want to do. And then it just charged around my body. When After my dad died, when I was 20, I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And what is interesting about that illness is there's so little facts about it. And that's mm. generally because there is a book that I've been reading called The Body Holds the Score. Or yeah, the amazing book. The score. Amazing book. And I'm like, I believe in that, dude. Like, where does this trauma go? Yeah. You don't just get abused or you're silenced and then it's okay. No, your body takes note of all of that. Of and when I'm not rooted in my spiritual practice, 
the only place the ill feeling can show up is in my physical. And I know that's a bit woo-woo for people, but if so... Not for listeners of this podcast. (laughs) Everyone will be like, "Mm -hmm." love that book. (laughs) (laughs) If I can't meditate or get time alone, like I missed a therapy session last week and oh my God, I literally crawled on my stomach to my laptop yesterday because I was like not having that one hour to really communicate without judgment how I feel impacted my entire week. And especially with a book like this coming out, I can't afford that. I can't afford it. I'm the same. You know? Well, I do 12-step recovery where you sit in meetings and talk about your feelings. And if I miss one of those, I feel the same. It's like I need that space held for me. And me too, it comes out physically. You know, shoulder ache, it'll start. Yeah. It's never about the shoulder ache. It's always about what am I holding, what's going on for me. And yeah, it's never that. And it's never like you being stressed ups your, is it cortisol in your body? Yeah. Yeah. Called them the arteries. Then you have a heart attack. But it can all be traced back to the thing that can't be touched, which is stress. Mm. So I'm like, actually... My spiritual practice is a way to stop me falling physically ill. And it's very important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And amazing that your children will see you doing those practices. Yeah. RJ's too. And he'll like grab a crystal and sit cross-legged. He's got no idea what he's doing. He's just like, he's just sitting there like, um, like, yeah, you do that. Bless him. I can't. It's so funny. No, I love him. It's so funny. Like I'm really into holding space for Jessie's feelings because it's something I never had. But it's a blessing and a curse because now she'll come to me. She's four. She's like, "Mummy, I feel really overwhelmed in my tummy," and I'm like, "You know, when you just don't have time for it." And I'm like, "I've kind of created this, so now I've got to sit down and you know." She puts worse to it now. And I've yeah. taught her that. But equally, it's like, God, I'm kind of in the middle of something. <laughs> okay. Is it? it is a double-edged sword. But as they get older, I just think that's the best way, man. Oh, it's, it's the, the only way. way. It's the only way. Yeah. I'm joking. I like it. Yeah. God, if I'd have learned at four how to process feelings, like a lot of stuff would have been different for me. Yeah. To be in a space spiritually and mentally where you can provide your kids with those tools, that sometimes is the legacy. It's not always money or business or change or upping your class level. I'm going to say it. I think it's the most important legacy because I think as a child, human, when you have that emotional literacy, that esteem, that enoughness, Mm. you can do anything. And this is the thing. You can make the money. You can do it. And that is what white men have above all of us. It's not that they are white men passing as in in their body. It's because they are white men, they have never been told that they can't do something or they've never thought that something's out of their reach because all the billionaires look like them. All the most successful people look like them. So just naturally, they awake every day and they smash life because it's like, oh, yeah, I see myself in success everywhere. And that is where the trick is. It's being able, if you can't see it, to have a support system that trick you into believing that you too are worthy of that space. And yeah, yeah. but I think there's a nuance here, isn't there? Because yes, in terms of a work and ambition front, but we know that, you know, the biggest death rate for men is suicide. Suicide. 
right? Yeah. So it's like, yes, they might be able to get at the boardroom table or get to uni, yeah. but they can't process a feeling. They or can't talk. talk. Yeah, they can't talk. So in that way, they become at the bottom of the pyramid. This is it. I know some people will be like, really? I have great white male friends who at 40, 50 year old, after having kids and being married, I'm now coming out as gay. They couldn't say that when they were going to boarding school or getting their first really great paid job, you know? But after like five decades of all this spiritual work, they're like, actually... I don't like this bottom of the pyramid feeling and I feel differently to how my peers view me and I'm ready to step into that truth. And it's just so mind-blowing to have relationships with men who seemingly have the world at their feet, but in a spiritual sense are just as at the bottom of the pile as I am in terms of what they can discuss. And isn't that like the curse of modern day life? Like we have so much abundance in so many ways and yet so many people are spiritually bankrupt. Yes. Yes. Girl, don't make me click my fingers. (laughs) Do it, do it, do it, do it. (laughs) Literally, literally. Oh, I could go on, but... I could talk to you. I mean, hopefully when this is over, I want to meet up and we can talk for hours about this stuff. But right now I've just got four minutes of your precious publication day time. So I have to ask you the last question, which I ask to everyone, which is if you could give just one gift to all mothers in the world, what would it be and why? One gift? I would give you the gift of being able to see your children as adults, how you've currently raised them. So like the gift of seeing into the future. Wow. I no, think, one's, no one said yeah, that. I think if sometimes we were able to see into the future, there were just so many things you would do differently. If in your vision, your 21-year-old daughter was coming to you crying about a certain situation, if you were able to see that, I think the way we would parent would be so different. And I think the things that we, especially as newer mums, lose sleep over, would just cease to exist. It's like, I do not care if you're eating pasta off the floor today. I'm clicking because because that is literally what our mother kind is about. It does yeah. people say to me, I'm so worried. I think my kids having too much screen time. I'm like, literally doesn't matter. Literally all the study, it doesn't matter. What does matter is how connected are you to? How present yeah. are you with her? How able are you to look after yourself so that she or he can see what it that look? This is the stuff that matters, not the yeah. not the which nappy brand you use or or, or what or any of that. Any of or it. even in my case, the, the bloody buggy. I ended up and I didn't even put this in the book. Like a month or so later, I realized the bloody buggy was faulty, didn't even close properly. After all of that. <laughs> well, that I would say that's the spiritual message right there. <laughs> After all of that, like those things in the macro do not matter, especially since lockdown. Esme lives on some kind of screen, Nintendo, Xbox, I don't bloody know. But the other day she came to me and she was like, mum, can we have a talk about, you know, what I've learned about myself in lockdown? 
I was like, oh, okay, you're six. She was like, I've learned that I really want to learn to appreciate my friends more. I've learned how to enjoy chores. And here I am thinking, you just eat biscuits and play Nintendo all day. That's not what is happening, especially when they are able to see you process your emotions truthfully. Because she's watching you. That's why yes. she says it. Because she's watching yeah. you, probably thinking, what's this brought up for me? That's why you're modelling that. That's why she's saying it. Yeah. For her to even come and have that conversation, especially in a black household, where, like I say in the book, for too long we've raised our children to be seen and not heard. For her to come into the living room and say, let's have a discussion about how I'm feeling about the situation. I look at my other half with like winning eyes. I'm like, we've actually won because neither you nor I would have had the chance to do that at six. It would have been, get to bed, why are you up? You know, to have your feelings validated so young, I just think it's going to lead to such powerful moments. Amen. It's been such a joy, such a joy. Thank you for your time. So that's it. Thank you for listening to the episode. I hope you really enjoyed it. And if you did, please do leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. If you were listening to that episode, thinking about one of your friends, that they might benefit from what we were chatting about then just tag them in on instagram my bio will include the link to the podcast so they can find it really easily from there people often tell me they're desperate to share it with their friends so if that's you then please do i feel like the guests that we have on the podcast their wisdom just deserves to be heard far and wide so help me make that happen i'd be very grateful And also, if you want to send me any comments or thoughts about the episode, then please pop over onto Instagram at motherkind underscore Zoe. That's it. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Take care.